0: Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of post-acute and long-term care issues that you wrestle with every day. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits details will be provided at the end of this podcast
1: good afternoon thank you for all coming to listen to our session live please note it will be recorded and i just want to say welcome back um to, for everyone who normally attended our Famda journal clubs, um, this is the first one of this year, and we are very excited uh, to have Dr. Swati Gar going through antimicrobial stewardship and um, quality. I am not going to read through Dr. Gar's bio because we will be here for like another three hours, but I am just so grateful to have her here, grateful to um, be relaunching this and I will just um, level set with everyone. We're going to really um, pay close attention this year to stewardship equality. So if you're here for the first time, um, be prepared. We're gonna go deep into some of these topics. Uh, Swati, I'm gonna turn it over to you. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Diane. It's really a pleasure to come back. Um, I remember, you know, during, The past few years, I've been here for a few times and um, I'm happy to see that, you know, we are in a better place overall. I'm gonna share my PowerPoint so that I can start. Now, Diane really asked me to do something um, that is almost an impossible task. Talk about intermicrobial stewardship and quality within 30 minutes. So I'm gonna talk and um, without taking a breath, and um, we may, you know, glance over some things that I'm very, very happy to go into in greater details, but really um, setting the stage for something that um, Diane, you said about, um, we're gonna be talking a lot about this. And uh, and clearly, I mean, I think we all understand that, uh, you know, antimicrobial stewardship is very, very important endeavor for, our patient safety you, in making sure that our residents and long-term care facility have the highest level of safety as far as you know from infections and MDROs and drug-related side effects. But um, it also it, there is such interconnectedness of not just safety, but you know the operationalization of. How nursing homes work. So, you know, I know that, you know, we have had as some people will describe a interesting challenge of, you know, um, facility owners, uh, you know, how do you how do you articulate the case for safety for our long-term care residents to the facility owners who are very um, focused on operations and finances of it. So I'm going to kind of glance over that and share some of the communications that I'm having in my facility. So um, just uh, be, you know uh, uh, to uh, tell you my role, I am in a long-term care facilities. I'm the senior medical director of three long-term care facilities, uh, direct medical director for two, um, and then I'm a medical director for Alliant Health Solutions, which is a QIO, which, you know, since I started working there, I'm like, oh, my goodness, this was an incredible resource. Why did I not, you know, approach them first? And Alliant is going to be the QIO in the state of Florida. So please, please, please reach out to them. Um and then I'm also the CMO for um, Brainmakers, which is another great organization. So the objectives today is really all things intermicrobial stewardship. So we're going to talk about, you know, our journey really, of intermicrobial stewardship and how we, Um, you know, look at the regs and we look at the guidance that comes in the regs. And then how do we translate that into a robust antimicrobial stewardship and create some successes around that Um, and create that safety, but also then, you know, kind of, you know, find that happy place where it really is helping the bottom line of our nursing homes as well. So um, all of that. So these are the objectives. So I'm gonna jump right into this, and um, you know, and I, for the most, for most things, I do have that um, link that I have attached in the bottom. So um, I, I'll share this with uh, you, Shane, and um, you can certainly. Uh, if anybody wants this um, PowerPoint presentation, you're more than welcome to have it. But this is antimicrobial stewardship program. These are the CDC core elements in long term care facilities, and here is the here is the link in the bottom. And this is these core elements are the ones that are also listed in your QSO um, that gives that guidance. You know, from a le- regulatory standpoint, for antimicrobial stewardship in long-term care facilities, um, and this is the QSO, and it will directly reference that um, that um, CDC core um, antimicrobial stewardship uh, core elements. So I'm just going to highlight a few things. This is a self-assessment. There is a 16-page self-assessment that I would highly recommend that your IP actually takes that on and does it because this is going to be super helpful, you know, when um, not just for us to make sure that we are not missing out on anything, but also when um, surveyors come in, you know, this is a really great self-assessment that your IPs can show to the surveyors when you're doing that. That said, this is just the antimicrobial stewardship part of it. So number one, your governing body needs to be involved in this and which is the facility administrator, the facility leadership, facility leadership is a triad for us, um, which is a uh, medical director, um, you know, your DON and your administrator or, you know, medical director proxy, uh, whoever is that leader in the facility, clinical leader, um, The facility IP is responsible for ensuring that it is implemented, but they want a team and other leaders as well. So in our facility, it is the IP because the IP is really at the end of the day going to be answerable to that particular, um, you know, uh, surveyor about the Intermicrobial Stewardship Program. In our facility, it is the IP and the consultant pharmacist with me as a medical director. Uh, but the heroes of our, um, you know, and that is one of the roles as a medical director that you have is, you know, who's gonna be the hero of this program? And it is the IP and the consultant pharmacist. Um, the facility has written protocols on antibiotic prescribing, uh, we will get into that. Infection assessment tools are management algorithms. We are also going to get into that clearly as far as one of them, um, there is application of low minimum criteria. They already define it in, in, in this um, document. And yes, we do have that and we will talk about it uh, briefly. Um, antibiotic use, you have to have a report uh, summarizing the antibiotic use from pharmacy data created within last three months. So quarterly antibiotic reports that are being looked at and being acted upon. Um, And then, you know, antibiogram or at least some evidence that we are looking at the resistance pattern um, in the microbes uh, that we are finding in our facility um facility cl- clinical leadership which is you know a medical director will provide other clinical prescribers with feedback on you know their performance on an annual basis and then the leadership is also providing training and education so it could be you know multiple areas of training and education and then finally educational material need to be shared with families and um residents an incredible task, right? Um, So I can tell you here, leadership matters. And and we found that out when we were actually doing immunization program, um, you know, after we were, um, you know, when we were all in the throes of COVID, right? Um, And what we found out is that, you know, our triad was very immunization forward. And what it accomplished is 80% rates of vaccination for COVID when it first came out um, before the mandates in our staff. So we had like 90 plus percent in residents, but we had 80 plus percent in staff even before the mandate. So leadership matters. We have proven that to ourselves in the way that, um, you know, that we see different things being prioritized by leadership in the facility. So, um, so then, you um, who are the people who are in the leadership who need to be a part of this this effort of antimicrobial stewardship? Um, and, you know, how are we um, meeting? Uh, what is getting discussed? And where are we meeting, right? So, you know, we have this guidance that, you know, in Quapi we need to discuss all this. I can tell you, yes, we discuss it in Quapi. but if we only discussed this data in Quapi, we would not have time to work on and come up with actionable items and not have a super robust antimicrobial stewardship program. So what we did and what we do on a regular basis is once a month we will meet and have this antimicrobial stewardship infection prevention meeting uh, separately and come up with that, you know, root cause analysis, very robust PDSA cycles, actionable items, and create deliverables. And we have been able to accomplish a lot. Okay, so um, (laughs) any other program that is a good program will only work, you know, we, we know it works when we are able to apply it to, you know, that if it positively affects, you know, the patient care in your facility. So um, I'm going to jump right into this case. Mrs. A is an 80-year-old lady with um, frailty and dementia, adult failure to thrive, diabetes with uncontrolled sugars, nephropathy, hypertension. She is a long-term care resident. Nurse reports that resident is constantly pushing the call light for going to the bathroom This has been new for the last three days. On further questioning, she does not report burning and discomfort when urinating. Vital signs are within normal limits. There is no suprapubic or CVA tenderness. What are we gonna do next? So um, clearly, if you um, did have polling, uh, you would be polling on one of them. But since we didn't, like, this is me, this is my bad. Um, uh, Since uh, I didn't poll this, these are the four options, right? Do we start the new, uh, nitrofurantoin already, BID? Do we start Cipro? I hope nobody chose Cipro. Um, request a analysis and a reflex culture or start the resident on active surveillance protocol. So clearly before we had our antimicrobial stewardship program, uh, you know, with the degree that we have currently, we would have different... Um, providers, you know, who would come in and, you know, maybe order a UA with Reflex Culture. Now, this lady is um, pushing her call button very frequently and the nursing staff is like, oh, I'm going to pull my hair out. Um, But, um, and and there is that, that urge to do something, right? You know, but after we have had uh, our intermicrobial stewardship program, and it is robust and we are giving education, what we are actually seeing is there is a standard where we are seeing that the resident will automatically be started on active surveillance protocol. Now it has become such a second nature for our facility that literally the nurse will start the resident on active surveillance protocol and then communicate with the provider, the physician, the APP, we have started this resident on active surveillance protocol. What do you want us to do? And that is success. That is a huge success story. Um, so for um, when we talked about, you know, who gets to meet and how we get to meet, we talked about, you know, the need for a separate antimicrobial stewardship, infection control program and kind of combining those two. And I'm going to go into why we combine those two. Actually, we also combine vaccination. So our antimicrobial stewardship meeting has three elements. One is infection prevention and control. Second is antimicrobial stewardship. The third is vaccination. And this is something that we realized when we were like really kind of wallowing in the COVID and COVID vaccination. And I'm like, light bulb. And I will tell you about that light bulb moment in a minute. But who all are involved. So in our antimicrobial stewardship meeting, we have infection preventionists, we have medical director, we have all facility um, administrators, we have all facility medical directors, we have all the clinical leadership, um, we have um, uh, nurse managers, if they can come, but all the DONs, right? So we are all sitting together and kind of troubleshooting and figuring out what are the barriers? And these have been our deliverables. We created a toolbox. We created a S bar that worked for our nurses. That was not, you know, super onerous because the nurses are like, you know, if you ask me to check box like fifty million things, it's not going to happen. So we continue to kind of refine the S bar to really match the amount of crazy amount of work that our nurses have to do. Um, We created active monitoring protocols, which now I am actually in the process of, you know, working with a a, a big um, EHR chain to kind of put it into their system so that it becomes an actionable report. Um, where I can generate a report on who all are on active monitoring protocol because we have now codified this active monitoring protocol, and I'm going to go into that a little bit. Um, Everybody knows in the nursing home what a low minimum criteria is now, um, and we have created a a long-term care antibiotic protocol based upon antibiogram and a feedback form, and we're going to go into that. This is our active monitoring or our active surveillance protocol. Um, this is, you know, just for UTI. So we have created for different, um, you know, systems, um, uh, disease areas like respiratory illness, you know, um, your um, GI illness and your UTI. So we have created this. This already happens. The top part is exactly the same for everything. Here's the thing. when when somebody says that I am having some issue that is different from what I was having, this lady had a new symptom. Our sweet spot, that's the baseball family, right? Our sweet spot is to not unnecessarily treat them, but also not have them slide into sepsis. So what we did, we started out with the typical active monitoring protocols that are out there And then we said to ourselves, we want to watch for sepsis. We want early signs of sepsis in there. So we actually did the 100-100-100, the uh, Minnesota Hospital Association 100-100-100 protocol, and we incorporated that into our active monitoring protocol. So we are really able to find that sweet spot where we are not unnecessarily uh, doing urinalysis, jumping to urinalysis too quickly, but also you know, monitoring them so carefully and having those warning signs so that people are not sliding into sepsis. So um, so that is critically important. And it is critically important that the nurses, we don't just have it, but the nurses are educated on it and make sure that the nurses are comfortable using this. So this protocol clearly has closer monitoring, increased PO fluids, and then the Typical things that we would rule out, right? Check for constipation, check for urinary retention, check for other things, right? So we are doing all of that, change catheters. Um, So we are doing all of that. This is your active monitoring protocol. Further, what we did is, you know, our our nursing home is, you know, the, is is, um, sending data to a particular lab, right? That's typical for all nursing homes we need to be able to ask that lab to give us the sensitivities of the typical bacteria, the number of isolates tested and what were the sensitivity patterns. And what we figured out is that our nursing homes are not sending enough volume to give the sensitivity per year. So they said we can do this in two year data. So we are getting it every other year We're reviewing this data, and then what we do is we come up with our pharmacist with an antibiogram based upon the sensitivity that is happening. And then we create protocols. We create these standard protocols for empiric treatment for all different illnesses. So it has skin and soft tissue. It has GI, GU, all the different illnesses and we create and we laminate that and we give it to hand it to all the nurses on the card and then we also hand it to um, our all our providers um and what that has accomplished is that what is a good antimicrobial stewardship program giving antimicrobial stewardships the right the right antimicrobial for the right, indication for the right duration to the right patient, right? So we have been what we have seen as the lowest hanging fruit, the number of days of antibiotic therapy. We have gotten a handle on that. And it is it is absolutely beautiful. So clearly, that needs to happen. The important piece of this is education, which CMS is going to ask to see this. But it is also your protocols are no good if they're just sitting somewhere. Um, it needs to have, you know, a robust education plan. So one person who gets really not talked about enough is your educator in your nursing facility. I didn't mention the educator because we had lost the educator, but we just hired an educator. And literally when I found out, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. And everyone start, but start laughing. And I'm like, you guys don't understand how important an educator is um, in these things. So I'm so excited that our educator is back. Um, so clearly we need to do education and not just annual education, but also PRN. When we kind of when we falter, we just go out and do, you know, education for everyone. Feedback. Feedback reporting is very, very important. Here metrics are antibiotic prescriptions, dose duration indication. Number of urine cultures order. So you can have those two metrics. You have the whole facility data and then a particular doctor or a particular um, clinician. and then we talk about, you know, is there a you know huge difference? So for example, um clearly, um you know Dr. A is doing incredibly amazing, you know, when it comes to the antibiotic prescription with dose duration indication um and then um the number of urines um, ordered for resident uh, is is also much uh, lower so this is the data that we need to be able to share with um with our uh, providers and then the length of therapy though is where um uh, you know, Dr. A has a little bit of an issue where they are clearly going eight to 14 days where um, primarily it's one to seven days. So we just need to kind of sit down and find out what is going on. And what we need to discuss with them is antibiotic use protocols, stewardship policy and antibiotic use. It's important, right? Why is it important? Because this recent report, not so recent, came out and basically said there was a 15% increase in antimicrobial resistant infections in 2020 um, and an in, increase in infections, increase in death. Um, and that was, you know, clearly there was a correlation with increase in use of antibiotics. So, you know, we are clearly seeing um, these um, increase in uh, deaths due to MDROs um, and also crazy, you um, Uh, deadly fungal infections like C. auris, which are directly related to use of broad-spectrum antibiotics. Um, Is this a problem in long-term care facilities? The answer is yes. The short answer is yes. 30% uh, of us are, um, you know, treating, uh, using antimicrobials. 30% is contributed by um, urinary tract infections. And so, and 40%, is for medical prophylaxis. So not a great idea to do medical prophylaxis generally. So, you know, if that is happening, it is, again, another low-hanging low fruit, and we need to pay attention to that. Do antimicrobial stewardship programs work? Um, the answer to that is yes. This data by Morgan Katz, you can, uh, you know, go to the um, uh, the JAMA network. Um, uh, this data is a beautiful data that was published. Clearly, there's decrease in all antibiotic use, uh, with a good robust antimicrobial stewardship program there's significant decrease in fluoroquinolone use which needed to happen remember fluoroquinolone is the is the antibiotic that we love to hate now you know there is always an antibiotic that we love to hate it's fluoroquinolone right now so um so great you know it did work and also the number of urine cultures collected went down. And that needs to go down because we know that, you know, we need it, that 50% of women in long-term care facilities and 40% of men are going to have asymptomatic bacteria urea. We do not want to catch that and we do not want to treat that unless somebody is going to undergo a urological procedure, right? So do they help? Hospital antibiotic stewardship programs can increase infection cure rates. Rate While reducing treatment failure, C. diff infections, adverse effects, antibiotic resistance, and hospital costs and length of stay. So there is data in hospitals um, on this. So you are doing a more effective job of taking care of infections by, by doing that, right? So clearly, super important, super helpful for the patient, and you are more effective in curing that you know, infections that come your way. Um, there is a very recent article that actually I was looking at just now before this, um, which shows that, you know, if you have a robust antimicrobial stewardship program, your antibiotic patterns start changing quicker than you would think they do um, uh, of, of sensitivity. So, you know, if, some, if you are getting a lot of resistant bacteria and you kind of follow a really robust antimicrobial stewardship program, you are actually going to start seeing a difference very very quickly in the sensitivity patterns and it, that is so heartening um so we talked about this the meeting needs to happen separately the meeting needs to have antimicrobial stewardship infection control and vaccination rates and what do we discuss this is what we discuss it is all like creating that highest safe space when you know against the infections for our residents um, and so everything is so interrelated, and i'll I'll tell you how. So what happens is the um the um infection preventionists will get this hand hygiene data and see how the whole team is involved. This hand hygiene data is compiled by what we realized is we were getting a lot of hundred percent hand hygiene. Please, if it, I just had this conversation. If you have 100% hand hygiene in your um, facility and somebody is reporting this to you as a medical director, do not ever, 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 ever take that. Zero and 100, throw them out. They, it cannot happen. Um, so I told my nurses that, you know, this hand hygiene data of 100, I'm just not willing to believe it, Right. It, there is absolutely zero reason that there is zero way that there is no human error, right? So, it is an important thing to challenge. So, we what we did is we had a secret shoppers program. So now we have a bigger team of individuals who are going around and looking at people and figuring out um, what you know who is washing their hands and who is not, and so data gathering infection preventionist is compiling all this data and then, uh, you know, presenting it. The other important data that we are looking at is the number of urinary tract infections, respiratory tract infections, skin and soft tissue, GI, and MDROs. Um, I will tell you that we have had a lot of actionable stuff that, and, and what we are doing really is, you know, figuring out the rate and we are presenting that rate in in a line um, in a line um, uh, bar, and um, or or what is called a run chart, and that is important because if you give me a single number, not it's not telling me anything. This is non-actionable item. Please, please, please let your staff know, whoever is preparing that, that you do need the previous number, right? You know, when somebody is calling us with a I don't know a BUN creatinine number. We don't know how to act on it unless we knew what the previous one is, right? You know, what was what was happening? Is it getting better, worse or the same? You want to know that, right? So um, so I think um this one absolutely you need to know. And once we started getting um those run charts, what we have done in our facility is figured out how to get ahead of your soft skin and soft tissue infections. We figured out that they were worse during the winter months. And then we kind of said, well, did a root cause analysis. And we said, well, is it, what could we do? You know, why are we seeing this constant pattern of every winter we are having increase in skin and, excuse me, soft tissue infections. And then we are like, oh, skin integrity issues. So every winter, the skin integrity issues get worse because, you know, our CNAs love to use suxy soap and our patients do too. and we changed it. We changed it to a non-sub soap, and we changed all residents to ceramide cream, ceramide um, like really groups of ceramide cream and our skin integrity issues got better and our skin and soft tissue infections got better. And it needed us to really do an in-depth root cause analysis and then communicate to everyone because the one year we tried to do it and we found out like literally the next month when we came back, they're like absolutely not, Dr. Gard. Nobody is willing to do this. People want that beautifully smelling, um, sudsy, you know, soap, and I'm like, it's drying you out. And so this year we went and preempted everyone. Went to the CNAs, our bath team, our shower team, and said, yeah, the skin is actually going to get clean, but you got to stop using that. And went to like resident council and talked about this. And you know, thanks to TikTok, everyone is talking about skincare. It really changed our numbers, so um, so definitely that we found our GI infections. There was a potential, maybe outbreak of um, or would have been an outbreak with um, C. Diff. We uh, found that out in the in these numbers and those run charts. So absolutely, ask for run charts all the time. Um, intermicrobial stewardship data. So. They identify the infections, but then somebody has to kind of go back in and say, "How many of them fulfilled the Megue criteria?" So there is a seamless way that our um uh, our pharmacist actually is kind of applying that Megui criteria. Your infection preventionist may be um doing it for you, but definitely you need to have that Megue criteria to to happen. Again, number of antibiotic starts in your facilities, number of starts that you did is important um, because we want to know what we did and we want to know what the hospital did, right? We need to kind of have that uh, determination because we don't want to um, unnecessarily kind of penalize, you know, our providers when the hospital, like, you know, we need to kind of figure out what, how much are we contributing to the antibiotic burden, right? And then we need to calculate the antibiotic days and burden in a standardized fashion. And then we need to kind of start to see that run chart as well. so, we talk about all that. And when we are off, we talk about why we are off and do root cause analyses. So, um, this is your antibiotic burden, and it tells you a lot of things, right? So, and then we figured out uh, this um, um, facility COVID vaccination rates. And, you know, that light bulb moment was when we figured this out. So this is actually a very recent um, um, uh, uh, hospitalization data on on COVID-19. And we saw that hospitalizations went up this past winter and they are kind of up there. But this is by age and it is over 65 years of age. So when people say that, oh, people are not dying of COVID. Yeah, sure. Like, you know, all comers, Not so much because the older adults make a small portion, but we are taking care of older adults in long-term care facilities and super sick people. So our graph is that blue graph that is happening, which is telling you a totally different story than the rest of the population. Like I am going to have a different outcome than my patient is going to have. So I just need to have that recognition. But these are the patients who are getting hospitalized. This is the hospitalization data. So I'm like, hmm, can I change that? Right. And we realized that, you know, okay, so influenza vaccine, RSV vaccines, or influenza and RSV is actually causing changes in the number of hospitalizations that we have, okay, which is our value based purchasing measure. And We also have the courses of antibiotic and the antibiotic burden. It is affecting our antibiotic burden. It is busting or making our antimicrobial stewardship program. So what we did is we're we're like, we're going to go up further, right? You know, we're going to go up further in that chain and we're going to actually affect our number of antibiotics and the antibiotic burden by actually going before the patient gets infection and minimize that. So. I thought that was like such a cool light bulb that went off thanks to, you know, there are a lot of terrible things that happened during COVID, but, you know, there are these things that, you know, I hope that we are able to take forward, you know, uh, from COVID. That said... Um, we have used that with COVID, we have used that with um, flu, and we are, you know, we have very high rates of RSV vaccination in our nursing home. I think the high rates of RSV vaccination are really because like every other minute that t- on TV, it's like, you know, people are like talking about RSV. And so everybody wants to take the RSV vaccine. Um here is the latest data on and the updated um, um, COVID vaccine, just a plug, because you know I am utilizing this to decrease my hospitalizations and I will tell you why, um, but actually the immediate, like the um, uh, early effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccine, the updated one uh, against hospitalization and ICU admissions, 70%, 70% and almost 75% against ICU admissions. If I wanna decrease my numbers of HAI, which I'm gonna just now talk about, this is where I am going. This is where I am going. So um, for sure, I am doing that. And whoever doesn't wanna take um, the COVID um, mRNA vaccine, I'm giving them the Novavax. Novavax, literally like flu vaccine, created literally like flu vaccine. So I am giving them the flu vaccine. I'm giving them the Novavax. Um, I am giving them the RSV vaccine because they just wanna take it. Um, So the flu vaccine will decrease. So we talked about COVID vaccine, 70% decrease in hospitalization with the updated vaccine. Um, Flu vaccine will decrease hospitalization by 50%. I will take it because you know what? Look, um, this data, 28% hospitalization, if I was gonna have 28% hospital, uh, sorry, 28 hospitalization, if I decrease it by um, 50%, that is a decrease in my HAI measure, okay? So the vaccine impact, this is what, this is my light bulb. Um, flu vaccine will decrease hospitalization, pneumonia vaccine will decrease, invasive disease and hospitalization therefore. um, COVID vaccine will decrease hospitalization, it will also decrease my antibiotic use and decrease death, clearly. So all that data is going into my antimicrobial stewardship meeting, and it is going into my QAPI meeting. And because we are talking about it all the time, we're actually getting better and better. Um, so why is it important? Well, clearly, we are creating safety for the patients. But also, this is an interesting data. Um they surveyed a bunch of people out in the community, and basically they said that flu vaccine requirement should be a requirement for nursing homes, among medical staff, among non-medical staff, residents not so much, but even people thought that sixty percent of the sixty percent of the people thought that residents should have uh, flu vaccine requirements in the nursing home, and. They thought 25% thought that visitors should also be required to have flu vaccine in order to create safety for their loved ones. And further, what they said is, they are looking at these data. And when they are these data are made available and they find low rates of flu vaccine, they are going to choose a different nursing home, which was eye-opening for me. So here is the data that they are actually able to look at. CMS quality reporting program, which is basically please ask your nursing home to do this quality reporting program. It is literally a completion grade. It is not, it is not how well you did the homework. It is if you did the homework. So this is a completion grade. You got to put it in. If you don't put it in, you're going to be penalized. So a, this is, This is the COVID-19 vaccination coverage among healthcare personnel, influenza vaccination coverage among healthcare personnel. And we just found out that actually people are looking at it and they will make determination of whether they're going to bring their loved one into your nursing home or not based upon that. This is an important thing that we need to understand. We already know that these are the two value-based purchasing measures that are in effect right now. We already know that 30-day post-discharge readmission costs us, costs the nursing home. Everyone is aware of that because that has been there for a little while. And as of right now, your nursing home either got an incentive or didn't get an incentive based upon that. Everybody knows about that. And these The things that we just talked about, decrease in hospitalization rates, affects this as well. Now, here is the new one, right? The SNF, HAI requiring hospitalization. These are claims-based data of everybody who's getting transferred from the nursing home to the hospital. If they are deemed to have an infection, that is... Assigned attributed to the nursing home. And when that is attributed to the nursing home, that creates your number for HAIs. The period of baseline period that they had pulled the data from the nursing home has already passed. Your baseline is already there. Now the performance period for the nursing homes on how well you're doing on HAI started in October of 2023. So right now we are in the first performance period for the nursing home. This is critical for your administrator to know, for your facility leadership to know. Right now you can actually make a difference and you can make a difference by having a robust antimicrobial stewardship program. We just talked about all the elements that will affect your HAIs, right? critically important. And that's why when Diane said, we're going to be talking a lot about that. We are going to be talking a lot about that. So these are the BBP. um, uh, This is the runway to the new BBPs that are coming in, value-based purchasing measures, which directly affect the nursing home's bottom line by two ways. One is either you get an incentive or you don't get that incentive, right? So that's a lump sum that I get. If I do well, I have, so they have like 2% that they take away from what they would have been giving to us. And then if I do well, I get an incentive and that's a zero sum game. So if you know if I'm doing really well, I get actually more than 2%. What it also does is affects your payment for every Medicare patient who's gonna come to you the next year. So if you did poorly, it's going to ding your payment for every single patient who you're going to get paid for. So it's a double whammy. So I would totally pay attention to this. So HAI, we are already in the performance year, program year. Um, so these are the other um, these are the other areas where immunization. Intermicrobial Stewardship Program, Infection Prevention and Control Program is going to help you um, going forward. So therefore we are gonna be talking a lot about that. So um, following, right? We talked about SNF, HAI requiring hospitalization. The next one that is that we are gonna see is sunsetting of that 30 day re- um, hospital admission, but the, the number of hospitalization, long stay resident is gonna come into play in two years. And as, um, potentially preventable readmission, the 30-day readmission is gonna turn into a potentially preventable readmission for short-stay residents, right? So this is a within-stay um, potentially preventable readmission. So those are the ones that we can actually affect and make better. And right now you're in the, per- just started the performance period of, um, of um, the uh, HAI measure. I would really focus on this when a good thing is more than a good thing, right? Um, we are doing this as clinicians because we want to make sure that we are keeping the patient the safest possible, right? However, here is how it works. Remember the Q- QRP measures, which are what is the rate of immunization of your patients? What is a rate of immunization for your um, uh, staff? those QRP measures go into care compare, right? And those, when, and this care compare, insurances look at it, um, hospitals look at it, patients look at it, and families look at it. And they make the determination of whether to send the patient to your nursing home or not. That affects your census, that affects the financial stability. Directly though, your value-based purchasing measures, which are right now 30-day admission. And HAI measure is gonna create that bonus penalty structure for our nursing home and affect the financial stability. That's how the vaccines, infection prevention and control programs, and antimicrobial stewardship programs, it's all connected. And this is the artic- you know, this is how we need to articulate it with our non-clinical counterparts to make them understand the value of these programs. So that is in a nutshell um uh, my um take on antimicrobial stewardship programs. And uh, there is a lot of nitty-gritty stuff that I have not talked about, but I want to put in a plug for QIOs because I will tell you, Alliant, my role in Alliant is really going out and teaching as high up level as possible or as you know, deep into the weeds of, you know, how do you create antibiotic timeout structures or, you know, different questions of, you know, these at that level, you know, how can we create this, you know, antibiogram um, guide us on that and many, many, many other quality measures. If there's a quality measure that you need to work on, you have QIO partnership that you can literally go and ask. Even if your nursing home is doing amazing, the QIOs have incredible amount of data uh, of, of uh, resources that you can just ask. You don't have to be in trouble to get all their resources or their people or their incredible safety patient safety team, which is all IPs, they will come in, they will give you whatever you need um, and it's free of cost. It is completely free of cost. So nursing home doesn't have to you know pay anything.
1: Okay. The, the big takeaway is you don't have to be in trouble to get them. No, to
2: and you will never be in trouble if you kind of reach out to the QIO. In fact, if your surveyor actually sees engagement with QIO, they're going to be, that's a that's a little bit of a, ah, they're really engaged nursing home kind of thing. So.
1: Any questions for Dr. Gar? That one. Um, I get a lot of pushback from my providers who are appropriately frustrated by our subspecialists, like urologists, GI, pe- people who just want to start things. We have a lot of very complex residents. And so I, I'm trying to think about how to guide them in those complicated
2: interactions. Oh, yeah. Oh, what a great question, first of all. Me too. I am like so super frustrated. Literally this last week, I was pulling my hair out. like... Why are we giving this medication? Um, first of all, I think, you know, a cu- couple of things that I would say. Um, so this problem happens with our um, our subspecialists. One of the things that we can do is we can have, uh, create a communication with a local ID physician on call um, or create a relationship with them. And they can, and then you can kind of, sidebar them, right? You know, you can kind of say, hey, I see that this, literally two two examples. One is, one of my patients is going out for um, getting uh, a cystoscopic procedure done and they have like 10 days of macromed. And I'm like, what and why? Um, so I literally have created this relationship with my ID physician, uh, with uh, a local ID physician from the hospital. And I'm like, is this even kosher? So she said, well, um, do you need, you know, so I knew that we needed, you know, the guidance from AUA, even uh, American Urological Association, which I would love to discuss that someday. They actually have very robust, good guidance. They The u- urologists, God bless them, not following it most of the time. So a lot of times I am actually sending them these beautiful notes with the guidance from AUA, which... Uh-huh hate. But, you know, I don't have to start that. So communication with your, um, you know, referral hospital with ID physician, typically your ID physicians are going to be your cheerleaders for antimicrobial stewardship. Great point. Um, and the second thing is, you know, these resources of pulling guidances from their own associations and giving them that is super helpful. The other place, just while I have that thought, the other place where we need to be brave about this is when patients are getting transferred to us, right? When patients are getting transferred to us from the hospital and invariably you'll see the patient has been in the hospital for 10 days. They were started, you know, they were in there for some other thing. Now they had pneumonia. They were treated for pneumonia on a regular floor. They are not by any means in ICU or whatever. They're treated for pneumonia for 10 days. Nobody treats pneumonia for 10 days unless you're in an ICU. And then they come in to you with additional five to seven days of antibiotics for that pneumonia that has already been treated for 10 days. And you, I just look at the chart, go back, look at the chart, and I'm like, what are you treating? And And also, I am empowering my admission coordinator to basically say, Dr. Gar will not accept a patient unless I have the indication for um, this antibiotic that you're gonna send this patient for and the date for that antibiotic. Without that, we're not accepting. So we are then communicating with the case manager and saying, hey, you wanna get the patient out? Get me the doctor so that I can ask that question. Um, or if I looked at the chart and they don't have a you know pneumonia that requires them to have an ICU stay, five days. Is pneumonia guidance right? I discontinue it. So be be thoughtful. You know, look at all the records, but be brave to discontinue these random antibiotics that are you know coming. The patients are coming in with. So great question. Thank you,
1: Swati. Will we be able to have a copy of your slide deck to post?
2: Oh yes, yes we will. And I know that you had said send me ahead of time. All right. I will get that for you.
1: Any other questions um, from anyone? Well, you know, Swati, I love you. And I thank you for um, doing this. Is starting us off in the right way for the year. Uh, You guys, if you are listening um, to the recording or if you're here now, Swati said, get in contact with your QIO, they will help. Please let's do that, especially in the state of Florida. Thank you, thank you so much, Dr. Absolutely.
2: Garth. Oh, and can I put in a shameless plug? Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um. So we are we talked about uh, infection prevention and control as well, right? You know, and one of the things that I feel like we have, I definitely have, and I think a lot of us have a challenge with is, you know, when we are getting people transferred to us or when we are developing MDROs, um, you know. It's like, it's always a question. Okay, Dr. Gaur, can we bring them in? Can we cohort them with somebody else? Can we, um, um, you know, how do we take care of them? Are they going to be in isolation? What kind of isolation? How long is the isolation? What should we do? Should we do surveillance cultures? How do we do this? And then, you know, clearly you're bringing somebody in with isolation and they get delirious because they are now in isolation. How do we take them out? What can we do? So, you know, all these burning questions, including... You know, do we isolate for MRSA when the hospital is not doing it? Should, should we isolate for CPCRE? Or do you have a CRS patient? Or you're, if you don't, you will. This year, you will have a CRS patient that you will, patient with CRS, We should Okay, yes. sorry, patient with C-ORS. Sorry, Diane. Um, um, you will have them. How do you manage those different things? Um, so here's the sh- shameless plug. I am doing so, AMDA. If you are registered for the annual conference for AMDA, this is a free session for you. It's the end of February. And it is, and Ian, I'm going to um, request that you send this uh, maybe notice out to everyone because it's going to be incredible. It's a panel discussion with. Dr. Um Kara Jacobs, um, Betsy, who's the head of CDC long-term care division, who has come up with um, you know, the, the whole EBP guidance, you know, enhanced barrier precaution guidance. It is Dr. Salman Ashraf, who is our um who's going to be actually our um chair of infection advisory committee. He is a, a geriatrician and a ID physician and works with the State Department uh, in Nebraska. Um And me, who works in a QIO and is also a medical director and who has to deal with it, and an infection preventionist to kind of answer these really, really, really difficult questions. So that is end of February. If you're registered for AMDA, it is free for you. If you're not registered for AMDA, it is not a huge amount of fees. But I would definitely recommend, you know, it's the straight from the, what do they say, horse's mouth or whatever, like literally straight from the source of who came up, who has looked at all the evidence and has come up with these EBP precautions and different levels of expertise and uh, bringing that whole, the whole vertical, we say, CDC, um, State Department of Health, Uh, and also medical director and infection preventionist and a QIO, everybody at the same table. So I'm super excited about that. Please, please, please come to that.
1: Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, The recording will be available. The the slides will be um, available. Please, please, please download it when we push it out to you. Have a great day. Thank you, Swati.
2: Thank you. Thank you for your time.
0: If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit PALTC.org podcast.